Okay, thank you for uh, coming. Um, I was looking for a reason to get out of the heat myself today, so this, this is a good place. Um, we're pleased that you've come, and uh, we're especially pleased to have uh, Mike Savonis and uh, Cynthia Rosenzweig, Dr. Rosenzweig from NASA. Um, Mike has been with the Federal Highway Administration, and uh, without going through all of the awards that he's won with the federal government for his work on climate and air quality, let me just say that he's done a lot to push the issue of air quality within that agency to the point now where they have a, uh, a, a committee and uh, a center and a working group on climate uh, and air quality issues. and. Uh, and uh, this report that he's going to talk about today about Gulf Coast transportation is one of the climate change science uh, programs uh, products, so to speak, um, that looks and assesses the Gulf Coast transportation in light of a climate change or anticipated climate changes. And so um, he's going to speak to that report today. And I've always personally regarded the Gulf Coast and uh, New Orleans in particular as being uh, incredibly vulnerable given its peculiar situation and condition, and Mike will describe the details of that. And after Mike, we'll have uh, Dr. Cynthia Rosenzweig, who's been working at uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies uh, up in New York, uh, part of NASA, as you know. Uh, one of her colleagues is Jim Hansen. You may have heard his name in the paper once or twice. Um, and a few other uh, notable folks uh, working up there. Uh, Cynthia's been working on um, assessments, basically uh, focused largely these days on New York City, but um, has had broader interest on agriculture and climate change, how that's going to impact water issues related to agriculture and food production. Um, but for the last uh, nine years or so, she's turned her attention to New York City. How will New York, New York City adapt? Working with the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, working with the uh, political folks up in New York City. And uh, in my view, they've got one of the most active groups working on this issue, this issue being climate change. Uh, very aggressively, both uh, trying to understand uh, the scale of the impacts, uh, uh, the worst of them, where they're likely to be, how the water system in particular is going to be impacted, and what they're going to do about it. And uh, she will unravel all of that for you today, but uh, she also comes equipped with uh, you know, 80 or so publications to her name. Uh, she's been part of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, reports over the years. Um, she's been very active with the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, she's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She's, she's done a lot of really good work. And so with that, Mike, would you kick us off? Okay. Can everybody hear me okay? Sounds all right. Um, good morning. It's really a pleasure to be here to tell you about the Gulf Coast study. Um, the Gulf Coast study, in my opinion, provides a very compelling reason for the transportation world to care and care deeply about climate change issues. It's also a great opportunity for us to continue a dialogue that started 
about 10 years ago or so between the transportation community and the climate community. And I think we really need to continue that dialogue because there's a lot of work to be done. We got interested, at the Department of Transportation, we got interested in climate change and the whole question of adaptation about 10 years ago. <clears throat> the question is really how will climate change and variability, including temperature change and precipitation change and sea level rise and storm intensity, have an impact, could it have an impact, on the kinds of decisions that we make in the transportation world on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Things like operations and maintenance, planning and investment, and project development, which of course is very important to us. And could it have an impact on the location, on the design, on the specifications that we in the transportation world deal with on a regular basis? We convened a workshop, a very important workshop, that took the best climate scientists in the country and married them with transportation decision makers and we developed a research agenda. Out of that research agenda came the Gulf Coast study. Now this slide really represents to me the issue in a nutshell. If we start with the green bar down on the bottom, the transportation planning process, this is the federal transportation planning process for surface transportation. And we're very proud of this. We try to look out 20 years into the future and to meet the needs of a future transportation uh, network. At some point in that process, our plans coalesce and we begin with project development. And it moves to construction. And really the issue is this dark blue bar where the facility, be it a port, an airport, or a section of roadway, is in service. And it's in service for 50 to 100 years. Exactly the time frame represented by the background where the climate is changing and the kind of impacts that we need to plan for. So we thought it was a very important topic and it, I think, proved to be, once you'll see our results, I think you'll agree. We put together an excellent study team. The report has 27 authors. I would like to recognize five others in addition to myself, folks that worked very hard for about five years to put this report together. Virginia Burkett is Chief Scientist of Climate at the United States Geological Survey, and she was one of three main lead authors with uh, Joanne, Joanne Potter from Cambridge Systematics. In addition, part of our management team included Rob Kefalenos from the Federal Highway Administration, Ken Leonard from Cambridge Systematics, and Rob Hyman from Cambridge Systematics. We also had a Federal Advisory Committee and there are names in here that are both in the transportation world, both national and local in the Gulf Coast, as well as people who are very aware of assessments, uh, climate change assessments, people like Vicky Arroyo and Tony Genetos and Tom Carl. We in the transportation world are rightly criticized for being very conservative. Some would even say hard-headed. We tend to be that way for very good reasons. We make decisions in the transportation world that entail billions of dollars of investment on an annual basis. So we started, as we addressed the, the question of climate change, we started becoming very interested in what kind of information could we take from the climate scientists? Could we bring it down to a level that really made a difference to transportation planning? And we thought that the best way of doing that was a case study. We selected our region, it runs from Houston, Texas to Mobile, Alabama, it contains 
a lot of very important infrastructure, and it's very important to the nation as a whole. You know, more than, actually almost, two-thirds of the nation's oil supply comes in through the Gulf Coast. That's the imported oil supply. There's more than 17,000 miles of highway in the area. Now, when we start talking about climate change and we look at this in an investment context, I'd say that the bar is raised. We not only need peer review literature, we need a higher level of certainty because so much is at stake. You cannot plan for nor build uh, adaptation strategies that are overly expensive unless you're certain that they're going to happen. So to that end, we worked with some of the best people that we could possibly find in the climate world and we looked at a variety of emission scenarios. And I'm not going to walk through these numbers. They're, they're pretty difficult to get a handle on. But if you can just see across the top lines, the A1, F1, uh, B1, A1, B, and A2, those are emission scenarios from the IPCC. And we wanted to bracket what the possible futures might be. We looked at high emission scenarios and low emission scenarios. We also looked at, if you look at the different divisions here, low, medium, and high, we looked at different possible scenarios for the, the various models that we looked at to, that have a range of uncertainty associated with them. We used the best data that we could, and we really tried to define a set of future scenarios. We weren't predicting precisely what was going to happen. We were trying to bracket what could happen in the future. While we're trying to look at what could happen in the future, we also looked at what was happening in the past. And we recognized that it's very important for we and for us in the transportation world to look at an integrated system. One of the things that's happening in the Gulf Coast is that the land is sinking. And the land has been sinking for a long time for reasons unrelated to climate. You can see that uh, that middle bar is Grand Isle, Louisiana, and it's sinking while well, relative sea level rise is rising by almost 10 millimeters a year. That's absent. This time scale is from about 1945 to the year 2000. This is retrospective rather than prospective. So we had to factor that into our planning because overall, if you're worried about a transportation facility, whether it's a road or a port or a rail line, you have to be worried about the net impact. And what we found was that the net impact, when you factored in both the subsidence rate and sea level rise due to climate change, could be quite extensive. Uh, the climate scientists told us that relative sea level could increase from one to six feet. Still a pretty big range. We also looked at hurricane vulnerability, and it's high today, of course, and we may see an increase in storm intensity. That means that the Hurricane Katrina's may become even worse in their impact. And the reason for that is due to the sea surface temperature. This is a graph of the sea surface temperature in the Gulf of Mexico. And you can see from about 1975 onward, just the end of that graph, how those temperatures have been rising. Now I'm a transportation guy, I'm not a climate scientist, but every time I watch CNN and watch the hurricane tracks, Chad Myers is always telling me that well, once that hurricane hits the warm water of the Gulf of Mexico, it's going to intensify. And sure enough, every time it does. This is the kind of impact that we're worried about. As the Gulf of Mexico temperatures increase, we may see stronger and stronger storms. We also found that average temperature is likely to increase two to four degrees. Now, 
In the transportation world, I don't know how to deal with that information. I don't know what it means for average temperature to go up by two to four degrees. But as average temperature goes up, so does the distribution of temperatures shift. So not only do you see average temperature increase, uh, the mean or something like that, you also see the extremes go up. And in the Gulf Coast, we anticipate that days above 90 degrees could increase by 50%. That's a lot more hot days. From an investment perspective, it's very hard to say anything about precipitation levels. Some of the models indicated that precipitation, average precipitation, would go down. Some would indicated that average precipitation would go up. Well, it's hard to do anything with that from an investment perspective. But the intensity of the rainfall events has already increased nationally, and we anticipate that that's going to go up again. That can have important impacts for temporary flooding. Finally, we found that the magnitude of the impacts worsens as the emissions levels go up under the IPCC scenarios. And I throw that in because, it's, in part, it's an obvious conclusion, but I throw it in because some have indicated that the department's only interested in impacts and adaptation and that we're not interested in mitigation. And I'm here to say that we have a very extensive research program trying to understand how we contribute to climate change as well, if, not, if only in part because the impacts will be worse if we continue to emit at the levels we are. So our precise findings, we narrowed the range. Instead of looking at a range of one to six feet, we looked at a range of two and four feet. We think that's a very conservative range because we're trying to plan for the future impacts. Planning for the best case, only a one foot scenario rise, um, could, be, could happen, and you have to ask yourself, do you feel lucky, and only get away with a one foot rise? On the other hand, planning for the worst case always could have very important investment considerations. The costs may go up significantly. So we narrowed the range. We looked at two and four feet, and some areas of the Gulf, if projected to 2100, would experience already a two-foot rise in relative sea level. But at four feet, we found that more than 2,400 miles of roadway are at risk of permanent flooding. That's uh, a quarter, roughly, of the major roadways. And these are only the major roadways. We can tell you which roadways. We can't tell you exactly when they would be flooded, but from a look at their geographic location, you can get a pretty good sense as to which ones are at most risk. That 2,400 miles is a very significant impact and a very good reason for the transportation world to care about climate change. If we were to include the next level of roadway down, these are only the interstates and arterials, and if we took the next classification of road into account, that number could be 4,000 miles. We similarly found that three quarters of the freight and non-freight facilities uh, are at risk of permanent flooding just 9% of the rail miles, and that, that ultimately may prove to be something of an underestimate. Uh, the reason I say that, they are located more inland, generally speaking. And while 9% is not insignificant, turns out to be about 250 miles, uh, it's probably an underestimate because if you have a section of rail line that's underwater here, and a section here that's elevated, you still can't operate it. Three airports, 
And then finally, while we couldn't do much in really trying to simul simulate the future conditions, we thought that if we started putting together some of the impacts of relative sea level with heavier downpours, you might be able to get a sense as to what areas are most at risk. So all we can do right now is qualitatively say that this combination of effects will, will give you a, a first order indication. And that may be enough for local planners to, to do more with. Here's a look. We all know that, that the Gulf Coast is very low-lying, and there are portions that are already under uh, sea level. That's indicated in red. It's fairly minor right now. Under a scenario where we have four feet of sea level rise, that picture changes dramatically with large portions of the Gulf Coast underwater. We also took a look at storm surge, and of course, we all know what happened in 2005 with the hurricanes Katrina and Rita. Um, we had selected our study area before that, but it was a grim reminder of just how devastating hurricanes can be to a vulnerable area. If storm intensity increases, as we think it will, uh, that vulnerability will only get worse. We took a look at flooding. Uh, this is temporary flooding due to storm surge. We looked at two different levels, 18 feet and 23 feet. And to give you some sense as to what that means, Hurricane Katrina had a storm surge of about 25 feet at landfall. 18 feet can happen with a, a Category 3 storm. It doesn't have to be a Category 4 or 5 storm. So at 18 feet, half of the interstate and arterial miles are subject to temporary flooding. All of the port facilities, or virtually all of the port facilities. About a third of the rail miles operated because the land is so low-lying. 22 airports in the study area. And finally, while we couldn't do much associated with pipelines, it is a form of transportation, and we did look at it. It's a very difficult study to do. All we could really say is that there is potential damage to these offshore facilities. Some hurricanes do damage pipelines to a great extent, like Hurricane Ivan. Some hurricanes don't, like Hurricane Katrina. Now, we did not examine the facilities for potential damage due to storm surge. Um, but this is a reminder as to what Hurricane Katrina could do and did do to the region. This is Highway 90 at Bay St. Louis. This was a bridge. It was a bridge that was about 9 to 12 feet off the water. The storm surge actually lifted up the bridge decking and then crashed it down again, breaking, the, breaking it into various pieces. It's really a success story, though. While it was an awful uh, uh, occurrence, the area has responded. They've rebuilt the bridge. It now soars 85 feet in the air as a means of protecting against storm surge. This is a picture uh, of the area that's below 18 feet of mean sea level. You can see that large portions, it extends all the way up to Baton Rouge in the north, uh, are, below, are subject to temporary flooding. Of course, any hurricane would not flood this entire area. It really depends on where the hurricane hits, how large the hurricane is, and other factors. In addition to the other two impacts, temperature, while it drives climate change, can also have an impact on transportation facilities and operations. As we have more and more hot days, days above 90 degrees, we see the potential for a change in maintenance and construction practices. 
asphalt wears out more quickly at days above 90 degrees. In addition, you can uh, face restrictions on deploying construction crews, and that will increase costs. When we thought about it, it was really um, kind of an obvious conclusion, but the increased use of energy for refrigerated storage, it's not a public sector concern, but folks in the private sector would be very concerned about those increases, and of course would pass on the costs to the consumers. So we may see increased costs due to this. There's a potential rise in rail buckling. Um, if you're used to the Washington DC area, you know that sometimes Metro has slow speed restrictions on very hot days. Well, that's because of the potential for rail buckling. As we have more hot days, there's greater potential for the rail to buckle. That could increase inspection costs. And finally, something as a, as a highway guy, I work for the Federal Highway Administration, so I didn't know much about uh, aviation and airports. But we learned that the length of a runway depends on the density of the air, and hotter days have less dense air. So if you have more hotter days, you may need longer runways. In the Gulf Coast, this turns out to be a very small effect. It's a couple of percent um, change in the, the length of the runways and can be dealt with in other ways. Also, there's a tendency right now, or not a tendency, there's a trend right now that is toward um, stronger, faster, um, heavier aircraft being able to take off in shorter and shorter distances. So this problem may go away over time, but it may still be an area in high altitude places. Now, the Gulf Coast study, I think, is a very good first indication, and this is only phase one of the effort. In order to really assess uh, a facility's vulnerability to climate change, you really have to look at that facility. You have to look at that section of roadway, that port, that airport. And so we have planned phases two and three of this effort that are certainly on the books. They're unfunded uh, as of right now, but we hope to get them underway. Our goal in going forward on this is really to incorporate climate change into the transportation planning process. It, it was no surprise to us that few folks are doing this on a regular basis. As we looked at it, it also became obvious that while we're proud of looking out 20 years in the future, the, temp the, the timing of climate change impacts at 50 to 100 years in the future probably makes that 20 years a little too short. And then finally, again, we have to look at this as a system as a whole, not just little pieces and uh, particular transportation facilities. Of course, what we're looking for, we're looking for resilience under a range of conditions. Not a day goes by that we don't see something in the newspaper about the transportation system being under stress, whether it's congestion or accident rates or other impacts. The American citizenry has really um, a high degree, a high need for convenience. And any impact that we have can have reverberations that are both economic and social. So we think we have to go to a new kind of planning. Things that are more scenario based, that look at statistics and probability rather than the deterministic methods that we have already. And, and probably something that's more like a risk assessment approach as we consider future investments. It's our hope that on an ongoing way, we can look at the system, look at the system in metropolitan areas, assess the risk and vulnerability, figure out what to do about it, make our adaptation responses toward a system of greater and greater resilience. There is no magic bullet here. It won't be an easy fix, and we don't envision 
a one-time effort, but instead to incorporate it into our planning processes. So for more information, uh, you can take a look at this. It's got a long name, um, but it's Synthesis and Assessment Product 4.7. It's part of the Climate Change Science Program, um, which makes it a US government deliverable. So with that, let me, uh, uh, Tony, we'll do questions at the end, right? Yeah, questions okay. at the end. Thank you much. We're going to turn now from, a, from one coastal city to New Orleans to another New York. And we're going to turn from a focus on the transportation system to another key sector and system, the water system. So I'm going to briefly tell about, give some background of the New York water system, key climate impacts, how we deliver climate risk information to our agency partners um, who are running the New York City water system, and then really following on um, what Mike was talking about, how to develop these flexible adaptation strategies that we need, first of all, to respond appropriately to the climate and weather risks that we have today, and uh, as, we, as we go into the future with um, the um, changes that climate change is projected to bring. So here's the background on the New York City water system. A, a comment to, uh, very often with water, um, the, is it, yeah, pretty much visible. Um, a lot of times nationally when, when water comes up, the, the water issues, we think the West, only the West is the, the dry West, all the issues with the Colorado River, et cetera. But for those of us on the East Coast, there's a lot of water issues as well. First of all, we have enormous population densities. You can see that our water system supply provides, the system that we're looking at provides 9 million people with, with water. Um, and it's uh, tremendously complex in an area of such high, high population density. Also, it's, um, it's also, because it's an older system, there's a, it's aging infrastructure. And um, that also puts a lot of challenges on the system itself. Um, so just the, so I said about the, uh, the 9 million people, 1.35 billion gallons per day. Um, the sewer system, so it's not just the upstate watershed, which uh, maybe we think of first, but then it's all the sewers that bring, and all the pipelines that bring the water down to the city. That's 6,500 miles of all, the, all those sewers. Um, 450 com combined sewer outfalls along the coast. And then we have, of course, a, a very important part of the water system, which is once we all use the water, what do we do to pass it along? And for that, we have 14 waste uh, water uh, treatment plants. They're all located um, and discharge into the estuary. So right away with the climate challenge, with climate change, we have to think what's going on upstate here, but at the same time, we have to bring in all the coastal stuff, a lot of the stuff that Mike was, all, the, all those issues as well. Um, so, they're, and they're responsible also for that integrity of that water. 
Now, because this is such a large system to maintain this, it is a very, it costs a lot of money. So the capital plan, to put this in perspective, the capital plan for just even, for the period from 2006 to 2010, is a $10 billion capital investment plan. As this aging infrastructure is rotated off, then, then it needs, is, is recreated, updated, and uh, replaced. So, uh, and obviously a lot of this is also long-term uh, infrastructure, as Mike was saying on the transportation side, water system stays around these pipelines, some of which, and, and the system was really created 150 years ago. It's actually a very famous story that the water planners for New York City 150 years ago, in 1840s actually, when it actually started, they went up to the upstate, uh, to the Catskills, and and created the reservoir system that brings the water still to this day. And so what I really have to share with you, Mamie, the, almost the most important thing is that for us as climate scientists, to work with the Department of Environmental Protection agency, which are, who are the water planners and the, pe the people responsible for the system today, they are also thinking about 100 years from now and 150. They actually came to us. The commissioner came to us and said, we need, to, we need to bring this climate change. What's going on with it? So that's really what I'm going to say today. But it's really a, almost an honor to, to work with those folks, because they're just really, really thinking ahead, as well as day to day, to provide the water. So question is, how do we institutionalize climate change? It's a very challenging issue. Very, you know, has uncertainties and um, a lot of lot of complexities to a uh, to to this agency in the New York City region. So, first stage is was actually the part of a national the first national assessment, which happened at the end of the last administration. Um, in which the uh, country was divided up into 18 regions, and one of them was called the Metropolitan East Coast, the Metro East Coast. And so um, researchers and stakeholders got together then to create the climate change in a global city, which, by the way, was the first uh, integrated look at how climate change would affect any major urban area. So that was, that was released. We started the work, actually, in 1998. So it actually is about 10 years that, that we have been working on climate change in the New York region. Following on from that, then that's when Commissioner, then, the then Commissioner Ward came and came to me and sat, sat, we had a breakfast meeting in my office and he said, you know, we need, to, we need to bring climate change into the agency. So we formed a partnership in 2003 between university scientists and, and, and our NASA lab uh, and the, this, this department. And then together, but really from the agency side, created in 2004 an agency-wide climate change task force. And this agency-wide is very critical because this, uh, the tendency in a way is sometimes, well, we'll just have a climate change office and they'll take everything about climate change into effect. But because climate, will, as we looked at that whole map, affects everything in the agency, we had everybody in the room on the task force. And it was great. So we had the, the, uh, the water modelers from, from the reservoirs, and we had the sewer guys. We had the wetlands, um, the Staten Island Blue Belt guys. And, um, but we also had the demand side on the conservation side, because that's an adaptation. And we also had the legal 
side because so much of what these agencies do is to regulation and that you have to have the, the legal people on board as well from the beginning. And so we're very, very proud of the, the, the first report of this work, um, of this, which is now, uh, trans, has now evolved into the climate change program, was just released and it's on the DEP website. So first thing, this is what I learned at NASA, you always have to have your mission statement in mind. That's the first thing to do. And this is the mission statement that we worked on with the task force. This was one of the, really the first thing that we did, uh, one of the first things we worked on. And it evolved. And it is to ensure that the NYC DEP's strategic and capital planning efficiently takes into account the potential effects of climate change, sea level rise, temperature rise, and increase in extreme events, and changing precipitation patterns on the city's water supply and wastewater treatment systems. And importantly, water quantity and water quality was included in this, the water supply. It's not just the quantity, it's also the quality of the water. Also, I'm not speaking about this part now because I'm telling it where this, this morning is focused on adaptation. But simultaneously in the task force, we worked on mitigation of greenhouse, of reducing the emissions from the agency as well. Because the wastewater treatment plants with the methane, they are, they are like, they, 7% 7, 7 of the New York City government uh, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, are from the wastewater treatment plants. It's a very, very large source. And so that, we also worked on that, but I'm just talking about the adaptation today. So what are the main impacts from this work that the agency needs to be considering? So as we said, temperature is, of course, the rising temperature. It's important for evaporation. It's important for on the demand side, of course. And you know, we have the, the hydrants in, um, in New York City. And on hot days, the, the, the kids would open them up and flooding water out. Now, we, now there are these special caps that, that are put on so that it's only a trick, you know, much, much less waste of water. But temperature is an important uh, very climate variable for the system. Droughts and inland floods, of course, upstate, that's really important. And then downstate, down in the coastal and in the city to in the wastewater treatment part, the change in the 100-year coastal floods, the sea level rise and the effect that that will have on the flooding areas with that, with that infrastructure at risk. Here's the system again. This is some work that we did um, with the, the, it's hard to see, but all the, the red dots are the 14 um, treatment plants and their vulnerability. So with, with the agency folks, we really dug deep into, okay, here are the projections and what are, what, are the, what are the potential impacts. So I don't know if I'll read all of these, but you can see that we have the mean temperatures, as Mike was also giving the range uh, from the scenarios leading to, on the temperature side, increased water demand, seasonal reduction in water availability, poorer water quality in reservoirs and downstream estuaries. That's because if you have more evaporation, that's concentrating the pollutants in the water. Um, in terms of the precipitation, there's a tendency for the uh, total annual precipitation uh, to go up by, let's say, the 20, by the 2050s. But on the, on, that's just on the annual basis. But the extremes show that there will be increasing floods and droughts. Um, and that greater and more intense precipitation that, that uh, Mike and, and his study looked at uh, in the Gulf Coast study 
that also has an effect um, in the New York water system. There may be more water, but perhaps of lower quality. And by the way, this is happening already with the, with the observed increased intensity. And that's because when there's an intense rainfall, fall, more is flushed down. And we have had some severe tur turbidity. While in the course of this task force, there have been severe turbidity. This is not just something, oh, it's in the future. It's happening now. Um, more flooding, more combined sewage overflow events. This is extremely important in aging inf infrastructures on, on, in, in many cities, not just New York, because the, um, both the rainfall sewers and when, when there's too much rain, the, some of the um, household sewage gets, they get mixed and some, they cannot, the, the wastewater treatment plants can't handle it and it gets discharged. This is a um, very important environmental effect that climate change will exacerbate. And then, of course, sea level rise, new stresses on the wastewater treatment plants and, the, and drainage, uh, increased groundwater pollution. So how do we deal with this range of climate risk information? Because that's really the, the way that we look at climate change now is really as in, the, in a risk paradigm. As climate scientists, what do we need to provide and how? So I'm going to quickly run through. This is a framework, right? Because you've probably all, you've probably by now heard lots of, lots of talks about climate change. This is really, it's not just about what the impacts will be. It's how do we set up a system in which we are communicating information about climate and climate risks in an ongoing way? So we have to handle, first of all, what's going on with the current climate in terms of trends, indicators, the variability. Then the projections in the future, a lot of them coming from the global climate models. And a key point here is that they're updated about every five years. So it's important when we work with the agency folks, it's like, we're giving you the scenarios now, but you know, in five years, there are going to be other ones. So in terms of incorporating the information in their, in their management, it's not to get fixated on this is the future, because our understanding of the future is evolving. And there's the climate uncertainty part and the sensitivity to the forcings of greenhouse gases. But there's also then the emissions, greenhouse gas emissions uncertainties with the range of, depending on what's our population, GDP, et cetera. Of course, then everybody wants downscaled. They say, what's really going to happen for the details of my region? So we look at, we use regional climate models and downscaled to get that, to get that information as well. Then because the agencies, uh, water agency, and of clear, clearly transportation too, because extreme events are in so important, just providing information, these are the extreme events that you need to know about and how they are changing now and in the future in terms of both frequency and intensity of those extreme events, clear focus on that. And then if I didn't have this one on the bottom, which you has a little bit hard to see, but that says ice sheet melting. If I didn't include that in the questions, you would all be raising your hand and saying, what about the ice sheet melting? So again, something very, very cutting edge science, but we all, everybody knows about it because the, the articles are in the newspaper. So we as scientists and communicating with the agencies um, have to um, take that into account. So this is how we're um, now presenting. This is one way of presenting. I'm going to sh show you a couple of ways. And we're still learning. I'm not saying this is, like, this is not the, the, the end all and be all. But what we do now to, to, sh to, show, to, to show the decision makers, the, um, the, and we develop this with them, the um, scenarios is what we call model-based climate probabilities. So we're not saying it's one number. 
or two numbers actually. What we're saying is we take 14 global climate models, that's 14 representations of, of, of future climate, and then three greenhouse gas scenarios because we don't know what those trajectories are gonna be. And we get, a, we get in this case, 54 um, possible future climates. And then we display those as probability distributions here. So let's just take 2050s for temperature. And what we see is that the range is from one to eight degrees Fahrenheit. This is, um, they use Fahrenheit, so that's why these are in Fahrenheit. But we see that there's a central tendency. So we see the range of uncertainty of the projections, but we also see that, we're, that the models are showing that there's a central tendency of about four to five degrees warming in the 2050s. So as we are, there's still uncertainties, but we're, we're, be, we're able to communicate the, as much information from the climate models as possible. When we get to the 2080s, you see there isn't a central tendency. There's just a very large range of uncertainty, two to 10 degrees, for example. But we're finding that this is um, a useful way. I'll show you uh, another way. I think another way is coming up. So that's on the uh, global climate model uh, scenarios. The regional climate models. When the water managers see these maps, see how detailed it is and how well, these are the observations, these are the models, they go, oh, we want that. <laughs> and they, everyone does want these, these, this regional precision, really. But as scientists, we also have to, we have to say, look, even though these are very pretty pictures and they look great, and I know Tony will, will, will you know, we can discuss this later, the regional climate models we use and we're, we're, we want to use them more or they're, they're in a much uh, earlier stage of development for impacts work. Um, and we need to develop them, and there's a na now a national program to do that. But, um, but So this is one of our tools, but not the only, because the global climate models are still providing a tremendously important, and, and important information. So then we use the models to create very, we, on the extreme events, just, we want to just make some very, be able to make some very clear statements that very hot days, for example, occur about four times as often in the 2050s, about seven times as often in the 2080s. Not everything about climate change is bad. Warmer nights is, can be good, for example, with people like homeless people who are out on the street. That's, warmer nights will be better for that, so them, for them. So, uh, we were looking at um, less um, cold nights uh, going up into the 2080s. In the, in the hot temperatures, in heat waves, though, we our bodies need to cool down. So this is not a good thing in the summer. In the winter, yes. In the summer, no. Um, on droughts and floods. The, what, the commissioner herself, Emily Lloyd, who's now the commissioner, she asked for the drought information and the flood information. She wanted both because before the whole system was focused on droughts, but because of the increase in intense precipitation, floods information, extremely important because they now have to manage for both. So these are the projections about very dry months projected to uh, increase, uh, very wet days, and these are the numbers. So you saw we also have to take the sea level rise into account, even in the water system when we were thinking, well, maybe we, would, we didn't need that, but we do. So this is another way that we show the um, climate scenarios. These are the sea level rise. In this case, it's seven GCMs and three emission scenarios. And in the 2020s, 2050s, 2080s, and these are in centimeters. And so with the box and arrows, you see what the, um, the median is and then what the uncertainties are 
this way. So this is what the models are saying, projecting in terms of sea level rise for our areas, for our area. And these, by the way, take into account the subsidence that we have in our area as well. It's not as great as it is in New Orleans, but we have natural sea level rise in the New York region as well. Okay, so these are the models. But remember that question that I said that you were all gonna ask me if we didn't include the challenge of the ice sheet modeling, or the, the ice sheet melting. Because over the 20th century, global sea level rise has been going up at about 1.7 millimeters per year. But what's been happening is that lately, in the 1990s, and even just in the, and, and, um, and even in the last five years, of, and three to five years, it's been much higher. The, the rate of increase in the sea level rise has been more, and this has caused tremendous attention, and uh, some of this has been caused by the Greenland ice, land, ice melt and other land-based um, ice melt. And so, but, but, but we track our own, so we have to track global and what's going on regionally. Our, our regional sea level rise is higher than the global, because of that subsidence. We don't see any acceleration recently, but we're looking for it and we have to keep looking for it because it makes it very important if we start really having an effect of the accelerated ice melt, but we don't see it yet. So how do we deal with this melting as we work with the agency? Something so uncertain. Timing, highly uncertain of, of of how this will continue. We really don't know. It's a risk management challenge. So first thing is track the observations and keep, keep working. Keep, we do some of the climate scientists our, science ourselves. We also are in touch with everyone who's doing it. We're tracking it all the time. We are testing the use of additional high scenarios beyond the ones coming from the climate models. We're not sure yet how to use those because they're highly uncertain, but at the same time, we feel we have to be honest, there's these potentials. We look back to paleoclimatic times that have had some very rapid melting. And then again, we emphasize that we'll update the scenarios on the order of three to five years. That was on the sea level rise itself. On the coastal flooding, I wanted to say, because we also work on transportation, so this is, this is the, these are the New, the New York City uh, subway system. Um, and of course, the big storms that Mike was talking about on the hurricanes, very important. But from, but from working with both the water managers and our transportation managers, it's not just those hurricanes that are going to be increasing, it's all of the levels of storms. And so last year, August 8th, I think I have a picture of it, in 2007, I don't know if any of you were from New York, there was a big storm. Every single subway line on that picture had disruption. So um, this, so we also make the estimates of how one in five year flooding events and one in 10 year flooding events. Because a lot of the, a lot of the managers, that's the importance, that, that's very important. Not just the, you know, for OEM, for emergency management, the big storms are really important. But for like ordinary kind of utility management, you know, resource management, that's important. Okay, let's go to adaptation. What do we do about it? So what we did with the DEP managers there, the water, the water managers, was create a framework for, for adapting. And this is, as you can see, was similar to what we've been talking about, gain understanding current climate risks. We don't like just go to the future. We have to say what's happening now. Anticipate the future climate changes. That's what we've been looking at. Here's what the actual decisions will be about developing climate protection levels 
for the systems, and then evaluating flexible adaptation pathways to achieve those climate protection levels. And then, very important, monitor and reassess, because climate change is changing. It's not a one-time deal that we can do all this and say, okay, fine, thank you, we're all set. We have to always be having this monitoring and reassessing. Time scale of the actual elements that we're going to be adapting is extremely important. If something is only lasts, if, if the water system only has something that, like, let's say they buy their alum one to five years, they're not going to have to take a climate change scenario into account. Medium term, one to two decades, yes, it's probably a good idea to begin to take climate um, to look at the climate scenarios. Longer term, two to five plus, yes. Um, and you see, this is important because on these longer decades, linking to that, that $10 billion, remember, uh, capital cycle, capital plan, then you have to, then because you're, as you retool, for example, in, in New Orleans case, the levees, or in um, our case, like the protection or building, they're, they're renovating one of the wastewater treatment plants. That's when you can then, it's a lot cheaper to, to do the, put in those, the planned adaptations then. And then this also is a very important point that I think a lot of times when we think adaptation to climate change, we think right away it's all infrastructure, but it's not. A lot of things are going to be, can be done with operations and management. So for example, this management of the reservoirs, um, they are now beginning to think about them both for droughts in which you have to have as much water as possible and then floods being able to um, uh, have ways to release water. And that's on operations and management side. See, that's not necessarily infrastructure. So I think that's a very important point to think about the, the categories of adaptation. Then we get to the infrastructure, but then there's a lot of uh, adaptation also that was prob will probably be done on the insurance side and the policy side, because we're not going to be able to avoid everything. So insurance uh, adaptation, which is an adapta adaptation to risk, a, ma a managing of risk, and then policy. The example we give there, which we actually did, we had Del Delaware River uh, Basin Commission folks come to our meetings of the task force, it's kind of like a treat. We already have agreements, but it's also it's kind of like, let's make a treaty so that if you guys are having um, a drought and we have water, we'll give it to you, and then vice versa in the future, and, because sh and, and risk sharing that way. So water, these are now some of the adaptations that DEP has um, come up with. Just. Uh, for example, I, we don't have to go through all of them because we want to get to discussion, but diversify water sources, expand water conservation and usage restrictions, water transfer, I just mentioned, water quality, acquire additional land and expand conservation programs. See, that's not really an infrastructure per se. Uh, increase operational flexibility, treat with chemicals as necessary. You see how we're starting to get practical. Okay, all right, with the, here are these climate changes. What, what can we really sit down and how do we deal with them? That's what's great about the folks. Rainwater drainage, improve collection, expand sewers. That's one of the first things they think about. They're in the sewer business. They know all about them. We need bigger, more rain. We need bigger sewers. We'll put them in. Storm surge and water treatment, raising the elevation of key infrastructure, et cetera. So I'm just coming to the end now because I think that this also is a very helpful, work, working with them, this is really the 
um, kind of uh, also part of the conceptual framework of how do we really get going doing this to construct flexible adaptation pathways. So here what we have is we have this potential rise in sea level rise. We don't know what it's going to be, and we don't know how fast it's going to happen. The scenarios give us different snapshots of how that might happen. And what we have is a, and when we really think about it, and this is why it's so great to, you know, and I hope in the discussion we can, we can talk about this, because a lot of it depends on a societal decision about the level of effort, how much funds, public funds, are we going to spend on this? Are we going to spend the same amount? So, you know, here, well, okay, then let's do a good job on our emergency procedures, or, you know, let's, it's about, we're trying to do that now. That, that can help certainly on, on, on coastal things. If we spend a little bit more, possibly elevating critical components, improving drainage, this one actually, this is not, this one is um, probably, this one is probably, should probably just be more. We, ha we have a lot of seawalls right now that are protecting the area. But you know what? A lot of them are cracked and falling down. Let's do an inventory and fix them. That's like same or a little bit more, right? Um, but then there's the potential, if we monitor, and then we monitor and reassess, if we see that this sea level rise is really taking off, there are potentially very high ticket items that, that could protect the whole region. For example, tide barriers. And this is on the sea level rise side. Um, this is a trillion dollar public investment. And it were, I have some colleagues who sort of, who want us to like embark on this right now. Um, what, we, what we in the region are really, we want to have everything on the table, but, but, but fit the different elements into a, a framework like this. So, and then in terms of climate protection levels, you see these are the possible ones one meter, two meter for protection, and then how do we get there in terms of level of effort and what are the actual <laughs> things that we could do. So here's some observations to finish. What makes it work in terms of really beginning to address the challenges of climate change um, in, an, I'll just say in this case, in, uh, in, uh, at a regional scale? Excellent local leadership, the commissioners, came to us, basically, and said, we, this is an issue. We need to bring this in. The, the value of having the assessments, and I do believe there's now legislation um, that is, um, I think there's language in legislation to have an, a second national assessment. Um, and this, th that provides this basis, this foundation, because we can't be doing this with every single uh, water system everywhere. We just can't, we, we can't clone ourselves. Having those as assessments uh, to provide the fundamental knowledge, I think, is very important. Basing it on peer-reviewed science and IPCC, et cetera. And then I think what we're doing also is creating new ways of working together with university centers, federal agencies, um, and local agencies to actually uh, provide the needed knowledge of working together. We held regular technical and policy meetings. This was just, you know, it takes a lot of work, a lot of time. You can see this is 10 years of work in the region that I'm reporting on. One of the things is we just need to do, I can't tell you how many times, for each one of the bureaus we did, one summer we spent the entire summer doing a climate change workshop for every bureau in the, in the New York City Department of Environmental Protection. It's just, that's part of getting everybody on board to be ready for it. And this is not to be taking on that tide barrier, it's to be addressing it realistically. Um, the role of research is very important because 
I think pre and consultants, you know, when we think about how does, how does, the, how does the world really work? There are the agencies that are running, running things. They, they have their consultants, their, their private sector folks who are doing their modeling for them, et cetera. And then really the research side was often, okay, we're passing and then you guys are taking off from there. This, because climate change is so evolving, it's just very dynamic. It's really the uncertainties are, are coming up and then we're trying to solve them. So, we, so I think we need to think about the structure of, the, of how we work together. Now and finally, the final thought is I think with climate change, we're beyond any kind of one-off study, uh, you know, adaptation, you know, oh, we're doing, in, you know, we're doing one, we, we've raised one building, we've raised one runway, we've done it. What is really needed now is basically, seriously, we're rolling up our sleeves, we have to be very consistent in what we're doing, um, in, in what we're setting up, we have to be coordinated, we have to be persistent. And that's where we are in New York. Thanks a lot. As you recall, in, the, uh, in 2005, we had significant evacuation problems. And the areas of Houston and New Orleans are all re-looking, and they've re-established their own plans. And they're looking at that as they learn of our study, and it just came out in March, uh, they are taking a second look and a third look at this. Uh, I do believe that they will incorporate some of our findings into their planning processes. And I hope that it's long enough lived so that we can actually keep them alive and focused. You know, one of the problems with reacting to a disaster is that we have very clear impetus to act right away. And then if we go 10 years without another disaster, they kind of fall, fall away a little bit. Right now, I, I can say that the area is very, all of the areas are very actively engaged and trying to do the best that they can. Josh Foster, formerly with NOAA, now with uh, the Center for Clean Air Policies, um, Urban, Adapt um, Urban Leaders Adaptation Initiative. Um, question for Cynthia. Um, in working with some of our other partners, they've put ecosystems as a main strategic pillar of what they're trying to do, both urban ecosystems and interaction with sort of urban-suburban interface. I didn't notice in the mission statement that ecosystems were mentioned, but you did kind of touch on like Appal the Appalachians and the wetlands. Is that a part of the of the plan for New York? Yeah, well, what I was reporting on really today was the um, DEP side. And if you go to the report, it, it, the ecosystems are a huge part of it because really the ecosystems, we, it's like a fantastic example of an ecosystem service. So in that part of the report, um, doing the studies of how the ecosystems will respond is very much a part of it. And another part, another way also, that ecosystems are a part of just the water side, and then I'll tell a little bit more about also the urban, uh, like our larger work, um, are the um, uh, wetlands in the blue, it, we call it, the, it's called, the, the DP has a program called the Blue Belt in Staten Island, in which they have created, um, constructed wetlands for stormwater buffering. Um, it's a very, very successful program uh, on Staten Island. And the DEP is, uh, that's, it's a program of theirs. So it's very much a part of that. Um, for New York as a whole, yes, definitely. And from, from the very first Metro East Coast study, 
we had um, an entire uh, sector on, in that case it was the wetlands, but the, the ecosystems right from the beginning we've included. My name is Stephanie Herring. I'm with the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. And uh, I had a question for Cynthia on some of the operations management stuff that you had discussed. And of course, we're always thinking about you know, low-hanging fruit. And it seems on, on those lines, there's a great opportunity for a lot of improvement and uh, in terms of mitigation strategies and adaptation strategies. So one of the questions is, how do we go about um, initiating operations management type policies. I mean, for example, we have certification for green buildings and we have certification for a lot of things, but we don't really have certification for operations management. So you may have a lead building that's gold, gold certified, but you run it at 65 degrees all summer and 75 all winter. And you know, your practices within your operations aren't particularly environmentally sustainable. And so how do we translate some of these infrastructure things into day-to-day um, -day practice? with that, that we have to think about, I, I agree completely, that I think a lot of the first things are not infrastructure, it, it, it will be operations and management. And um, I think that working with the agencies primarily, that's so much easier for them to do um, because they're relative, they can be relatively small changes but that can have a big effect and they can say, we're getting going. So I think that, and again, if you look in the DEP report and you know, in those lists, I didn't read all of them. A lot of them, and um, a, a lot of them, the way that they are um, framed is, what can we do in the short term? What can we do medium term and long term? And the medium and the long term are the infrastructure ones, but the short term exactly are then. And so I think in, the, in this, I think, I think we're really ready now for a new type of assessment. It's the, the, the next national assessment is not going to be, I think, you know, it's going to be an evolution from the first one. And it will be far more focused on identifying the adaptation uh, strategies and opportunities. And so I would suggest that in the template, you know, the, the, those, those assessments are done usually, you know, there's a, there's a process in the beginning in which you develop a template that then the different regions or sectors can follow. And having that called out so that then those things can be. And probably in your study, did you identify some of those as well? Like in the operations and management, here's some things you can do to get going. I think that that's very, it's very important to call those out. That's what's, and that's what's been, that's what we've done in the DEP. Focus on um, operations and maintenance was more of a nature uh, related to the impacts that we identify um, because there are so many... I think it's your mic. It's Mike. my mic. <laughs> right, let me turn this down. Here, let me, I, think, I think... Okay. Um, I, I think that we, because of the diverse nature of the various operations, whether that be truckers, rail operations, airport operations, we didn't understand the businesses well enough to get into how we might adapt very effectively, particularly from an operations and maintenance perspective. Uh, we stop short of just identifying where those impacts are likely to, to have an effect. Uh, my name is Jason Stewart. I'm with Senator David Vitter's office. Uh, I have a question for Mr. Savonis uh, about the modeling. Uh, why were the levees not included in the modeling effort, and couldn't omitting them uh, possibly lead to an overstating of the 
flooding risk in some areas? Yeah, it was. It, um, I, I left out the slide this one time on my caveats uh, associated with the study. Uh, levees were not included, nor were any other kinds of protective structures, and we just didn't have the data, quite frankly. And when I first considered this, I thought that this was a fairly important limitation to the study. And I was really afraid that we would be limited in what we could say about the impacts because of this limitation. But the more we analyzed it, the more we found that the or absence of the seawalls or the levees really didn't make that much of a difference. It probably did make some, but it didn't make that much. And the reason for that is that we are talking about an interconnected system. We are talking about two-thirds of the oil imports coming up through the state of Louisiana and through Texas and reaching the nation. We're talking about the interconnected nature of I-10 across the Gulf Coast region. As such, every element depends on every other element in some regard. So we don't think it's much of a limitation at all. There may be isolated cases. For example, um, I reported that three airports were subject to flooding. And as it turns out, we, we examined those in detail, and as it turns out, those three airports are in fact protected by levees. But the local roads that lead to them are not. If you can't get to the airport, you can't use it. Hi, I'm Bryn Lindblad with Senator Klobuchar's office, member of Environment and Public Works Committee, um, enthusiastic member. Uh, and I'm, my question's for you, Cynthia. I'm wondering how big of a part gravity plays in the sewer system, transporting from houses to um, wastewater treatment plants and then to the discharge, and if um, the rise in sea level is affecting that, and if you anticipate need of more pumps, uh, how energy intensive that? Sure. Yes, the entire system, actually I should have put that on the, the, the water, so the, the facts about, about the system. The entire system is gravity driven. And it is driven, it is the elevation down to the, to the sea level rise, like to the sea level. And so the, um, the agency folks, um, especially the, the sewer crew, were um, identified that as a, definitely a major issue. And in fact, uh, even beyond this, there, is, um, there are tide gates that then open to let the, to let the, um, the water out. And then, then when the tide comes up to, um, to close. But after a certain point the, of sea level rise, those, so those tide gates will work for a while, and so what we actually estimated working with them was how much sea level rise it, they could um, uh, endure, basically sustain, and that then they would have to um, uh, really then go to much larger adaptation um, events. That's uh, um, uh, investments. So that's a it's an example of where where they didn't know even what state of repair all the tide gates were in. And so again, one of the things, like first thing is, okay, let's go around, let's check all our tide gates and do a real inventory and see what's, and, and then and get those working. That's number one. That's like on the operations and management side. Then um, see then this vulnerability, how long would this system be, be, um, be able to be sustained with, with the sea level rise? That's why monitoring and reassessing is so important because 
we, they, they absolutely can't. They have so much on their plate now. You know, they're creating a second water tunnel. They have a tremendous leak um, that they're, that they're, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're doing, there's all of the agencies, I think, and you, and you probably, and Mike, you agree too, I'm sure, they're all dealing with so much all the time. But just knowing that it's something that they knew, do have to keep track of and that there may, that may be a capital cost later on. And I guess just a follow-up question. Would you know um, how many, like, what, if that's common across um, the major cities of the whole country, or in, uh, in terms of being gravity-driven? Right. Um, I would suspect that in the, um, again, in the aging infrastructure on the East Coast, probably yes. It's, it's prob and as are the uh, combined sewage overflows, the CSOs, the, the, the combined uh, sewage and um, rainwater. Um, so those are two things, that, again, that we should look to see in terms of vulnerability, that this, what we've learned, could then be um, extended regionally. I'm interning with Carl Levin's office. Uh, I'm sure many of us here have seen Al Gore's uh, movie, and I was just wondering, in his film, he claims that sea levels rise about 20 feet, and I was just wondering the discrepancy between his numbers and uh, the numbers you presented. Is he a little more radical, and you're simply more uh, conservative numbers, or where is the discrepancy? Do you want to talk first, and then, because this is an issue for both studies. I'd be happy to. Um, the question is to how much sea level rise we'll experience in what time frame is really the question. I had someone, um, you know, my presentation has really reverberated within the transportation world, and a lot of people who heretofore have not been very cognizant of climate change um, are sitting up and taking notice because of the impact on us. Uh, one particular person said, well, if you're only going to have two to four feet, let's just deal with it. Let's not worry about mitigation. And I had to sit down and explain to him, if we fail to do anything and emissions continue to go up, perhaps not by 2100, perhaps somewhere after that, we lose the ice sheets. And if we lose the ice sheets, we are looking at catastrophic sea level rise. So while our study recognizes that two to four feet is something that we can plan for, we have to be somewhat cognizant that it could be a whole lot worse. melting, speak to your question. And there, when we work with the agency, we have the agencies, because we work with basically all of them in the, in the New York City region, um, we have a fuller set of slides. And we do include the potential, as Mike just said, for the, for the, for the complete um, melting of the ice sheets. But we are also very careful to put, um, you know, to say that these are um, the uncertain, the, that, that, that actual outcome is uncertain, and the timing is extremely uncertain. But I, I, I maybe you remember, I said that we're testing the use of higher qualitative scenarios, which would take the rapid melting into account. We don't go all the way to the, that would be seven meters about for the 20 feet. Um, but we are testing, and we, we are considering, but we're discussing it in our group all the time, because and, and with our colleagues in the, in the agencies, 
and we're going to, we're going to be in, embarking on an, a new technical committee for the New York City Infrastructure Task Force. Um, it, and those are adding one meter and two meter. So that's like three to six. I mean, that is getting up there. It is, those are enormous levels, for, and that's for up to 2100. There are some paleoclimate uh, studies that have shown rapid uh, sea level rise of up to two meters. And this is something that Jim Hansen, um, our director, is, is bringing forward. But how do we then deal with that as we work with the agencies to begin which, in, as we've been hearing, it's just going to be, you know, in the first things, it's going to be seeing if your seawalls or your tide gates are working. So it's, it's really that we're really struggling with that and groping with how do, how do we present this. And I think some of, the, some of the things from the IPCC are very helpful because they're good because, I think, um, because they give the level, le confidence level and uh, timing always. And I think we, in what we do, in all the US work should do the same. Richard Frankel from Natural Resources and Environment at GAO. Much of the discussion you just had deals with my question, but I was thinking that when you showed your probabilistic uh, extrapolations of what will happen, they were sort of continuous. And you know, Greenland, you sort of figure it's going to be continuous. The main Antarctic cap is going to be continuous, continuous. But the scary thing, of course, is West Antarctica, which might let go in a startlingly quick amount of time. And the question is, have you thought about quantizing your projections? You know, uh, if this, then this distribution. If that, then this other distribution. So you know, we'll definitely think about that, maybe to have some contingency. Because right now, we're just saying, here's some possible, possible higher levels. Uh, we're testing the one and two meters. And I actually, I, I told Tony, I chose not to show it to you, you know, because my group feels you know, it, it's, um, it's, they're so highly uncertain that um, it's really in the realm of science research. It's, it's just not in the realm of actual you know, societal response yet. But, the idea of, um, of doing some contingency, um, presenting it as contingency, which goes along with the risk paradigm, could be a very good suggestion. Thank you. Actually, if I could just add, yeah. add a little bit to that, because we, we had extensive discussions. And um, my collaborator, Dr. Virginia Burkett, was always very quick to point out that we cannot ignore the potential for abrupt, more abrupt changes. And, now, it's easy to be lulled into a, a false sense of security because our models are more or less continuous models and they indicate nice, slow, steady increases or declines in, in various impacts. And the climate record is filled with discontinuous change. So we have to always at least have an eye toward that, that kind of abrupt change. My name is Charles Murphy. I'm with Zamorano University in Central America. Um, you were mentioning that you're taking into consideration some of the uh, high uncertainty possibilities having to do with the ice sheet melting and all. And one of the things that I've heard, I haven't heard too much about it lately, is the possibility of, of stopping the Gulf Stream conveyor belt type of things. And that would have actually a, 
or could have a very opposite effect to the things that you're considering. Is that developed, well enough developed yet that you're actually taking that into consideration as a possibility, either of you two? Of an abrupt change. Um, that's really the one that was um, depicted in the, the this is the, um, the slowing and um, uh, then actual uh, cancellation of the um, deep ocean circulation, the conveyor belt um, that, that brings warmth around, the, uh, cycles warmth around the world in the global oceans. And um, that was depicted in the movie, The Day After Tomorrow, in which then New York got very, very cold all of a sudden. But you know what? The movie makers only had two hours. <laughs> like, talk about an accelerated rate of change. <laughs> it was like two hours, and it, like the whole thing happened in like three days. And that, by the way, yeah, the abrupt change. You see, in the climate system, an abrupt, like for the melting, let me just go on the melting, and even for the conveyor belt, too. Like, an abrupt change would be a century, you know, decades to a century. So you, part of that, you know, in a way, people think, oh, abrupt, and then it would be. I've had people ask me, that's why it's so hard, presenting some of this work in New York. A woman came to me and said, oh, is New York going to be completely flooded in, in the next five years? And you see, that's just, it really, that's just really not a possibility. I mean, that's not, that's just too abrupt for the climate system. But there could be a major storm, of course, that, that, could, um, that, could, that could cause flooding damage. But it's, you know, she was picturing this, you know, tr the true like 20, 20 feet that someone was asking, like happening in five years, it won't. On the conveyor side, it's actually scientifically interesting. And maybe Tony also can speak to this, because maybe you had a, uh, you've, you've had a seminar on this. But it's, that was it's about like what, when did Wally Broker bring it forward? About eight or 10 years ago. And so there was a lot of interest in that, and, and the perception of that as a risk was greater, actually, about, like, even up to five years ago. But now, because the evidence of that has not, has not been, um, you know, the, the sort of incipient evidence of that has not been found that much, and also then the ice sheet risk has, it, it's, it, it's a risk perception issue as, as well as a scientific issue. Do you want to, can you speak to that at all? Uh, you know, there, there's some modeling work out on that uh, conveyor belt. There's a lot of it. Some of it by the UK, some interesting work showing that if you do get a slowdown or a shutdown of the North Atlantic circulation, tend to cool things off in Europe by about one degree, but it doesn't stop the global warming, the overarching uh, globally average warming that keeps ramping up. And so you might get uh, some relief for some amount of time, but it's still, it's unclear. Uh, so it's not as big a hit, or big a cooling as you might imagine uh, historically. So, and the other point was that by contingency, I think you mean worst case scenarios? Contingency planning, do you mean that or not? Again, there's that there was just one final thought on the on the conveyor belt, which is that uh, colleagues who work in in the area also have said the, that that it would actually completely shut off. Is it's 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 just it's such an extreme scenario that that they feel that that is not not realistic. 
to go all the way to that. But on the contingency plans, and this is um, thinking about contingencies, and just thinking out loud, not necessarily the worst case, but it's just if we get, in a certain way, that's what we're doing with the scenarios. It's like if, if, we, if we have very high emissions, we get this. If we have medium and if we have low. So we're, we're, we're already doing that. But now because we need to have this set others other in, present other information because of the ice sheet melting to say if, and I have actually a table that says if Greenland does this, if West Arctic does this with associated uncertainties, we present this to the New York folks and then the time frames. So that's really Tony. It's not necessarily worst case. It's just, it's just trying to break out what some of these uncertainties are. And I think that I think let's look to the IPCC because I think that they do a pretty good job in, in presenting this kind of information. And I think that's some of the things that we need to do here. I work for the Senate Commerce Committee, and we recently had a hearing on climate modeling. And one of the things that came up there was the struggles that communities, local groups, and regional groups are having with regional models. And I was wondering from your perspective what you think are in gathering data, creating those models, and disseminating that information so that people such as yourself can utilize that data to better prepare and mitigate and so on. The results that I was hoping we would discuss this more. Okay, we have tried, I have to tell you. We have tried and tried for years to actually get like re regional climate modeling robustly up and running that we can actually use it for our region and use it for like uh, consistent impact studies for our region. And you, first, you know, it's, um, it's challenging for a number of reasons. One is our regional climate models still depend, and Alex is here who is a climate modeler, and maybe you can um, uh, give your views after. Uh, Alex is a postdoc at GIS. Um, they still depend on global climate model input. Global climate models are imperfect themselves. So that's the first thing. Um, because they are finer resolution, they take an enormous amount of computer power. So you, one reason why we like the GCMs is, first of all, because they're global, and so they, and all of the processes are there, and the climate system is all connected. And so when you pull out just this little part, you're, you're making assumptions, and you, have, you feed it with the GCMs anyway. And, but we get, but we like the GCMs also because they're not as computer intensive now, and we have ensembles, what we do, we can do five realizations of one scenario and one model, and then, so, and we now, because we want to look at what the distributions are, and with RCMs, it's very uh, expensive in terms of computer time. And, but in order to really utilize them for what they really needed, what we really need them for, which is to characterize, well, how will extreme events change at the local level, we still have to, um, the, so computer power, um, then, and then the GCMs are, GCM drivers, of course, improving that. The RCMs aren't for themselves either. So you're, you're sort of concatenating in, the, in sort of, instead of just one set of model problems, you have two. Um, that being said, you may be aware, and I don't know if they participated in the, in the hearing, but that was the NARCAP, National, North American Regional Climate, um, Re Climate Change Assessment. Climate Change Assessment Program. It's run by Linda Mearns out at NCAR. 
And they are, for the first time, doing an organized set of testing runs for the whole country. It's actually with Canada and maybe, I think, including Mexico, too, at least Canada. And we are hoping that these runs are going to be the, it's the enough ensembles in an, in an organized way that, that they will be available. And we'll, we'll certainly test them, but it's, they're just not as robust yet. Alex, want to say a few words on I'll just speak quickly. Uh, there's not much to add, but the, the, our knowledge of the large-scale kind of climate timescales and climate spatial scales is actually better than our regional climate abilities at this point. So when we go down to higher timescales, we're also introducing those uncertainties as well. Yeah. That's good. Well said. If I can just add a little bit to that, uh, that you reference on Linda Marins um, has been very important to the Gulf Coast study. Uh, what she did was originally she took slices, north to south slices of the United States, three of them, I think, three or four of them, and attempted to do some of this regional climate modeling. We asked her to turn it, and she did it for the southeast. So that gave us some indication, and a pretty good indication, as to what might happen in the southeast, albeit for a very large section, essentially a quarter of the United States. The other thing that you can do, though, as, as you're looking at this information, is look at historical trends. I mean, you're not just one set of information, and you really do want to look at where the information dovetails. When you have agreement between various ways of looking at a climate impact, you can begin to have some confidence that, in fact, temperature is going to go up. Maybe you're not sure whether it's two or four degrees, but you know that it's going to go up. And if all the models agree, which it did in our case, you can act on that information. question, but, um, you know, what you guys have talked about is excellent, and you're clearly doing a lot with these sort of case studies. My question is, you know, in the absence of a federal or nationalized climate change adaptation program that all cities in the nation can kind of turn to and every, you know, congressperson's district can rely on, what kind of, you know, advice from your own experience working on the SAPs and working with New York City as sort of a pilot study, what are some of the steps that we need to be taking? It, say we don't have a national climate change strategy or national adaptation strategy, what can we be doing to help other cities, other towns, other regions start to begin to think about these issues using the infrastructure and the connections that you, you know, capitalized upon for your own work? The reaction to 4.7, uh, SAP 4.7, and to the TRB study that came out from the Transportation Research Board has been truly remarkable in the transportation world. Because this is, these are impacts that we can understand and can react to. It doesn't matter where the impact is coming from, whether it's a climate change or whether it's part of the natural environment or something. If infrastructure and services are put at risk, it's something that the transportation world can react to. So far, we've had a very positive reaction. And folks in Texas and folks in Louisiana and Mississippi are taking steps to incorporate these kinds of findings into their daily planning. We at the Federal Highway Administration, I think we bear a responsibility to provide guidance to our partners at the state and local levels. And it's to tell them, one, this is important, and two, here's how you might be able to go about at least parts of it. I am quite hopeful. I mean, I think we're at the very infancy of understanding adaptation, how we might, and it's going to be a long road. It's not something that we're one, two, five years. It's something that we're going to have to deal with on a continual basis.
But as we do, I think that we will make systems much more robust and much more resilient. So I'm very hopeful that the word is getting out and that we are reacting already. feel that we've had a lot of good experiments on bottom-up studies on climate impacts and adaptation. Um, you know, we look to Washington State. They're doing great work out there. California with the California Action uh, Adaptation uh, Program, et cetera. But I guess what I really feel, having kind of kept this going in New York for 10 years, that is that we definitely need federal program. Um, we are behind, I'm, I'm in the IPCC, I, my, in a certain way, my main colleagues, you know, the people that I really look to, that I'm trying to keep up with, are not in this country. They are in, I mean, you know, I have wonderful colleagues in this country, but the UK with the Climate Impacts Program, they've had that now in place. They are figuring out their second climate protection level for the UK as a nation. So I just feel, let's get going. So for example, here's with Noah. Noah has a great program on, on the recess regional for something integrated science and applications for climate. Every time I'm in a meeting with, you know, I'm in Washington all the time talking about all this stuff, I say to the NOAA colleagues, look, you know, they're so proud of, we're having this pilot program and it's been so successful. We are beyond pilot programs now. We need a regional climate, one idea I think very much that's important, it would be a regional climate center everywhere so that then all the different agencies can come to that, that's on the regional scale. I, but on the climate side, and this speaks to um, your, actually the question on the RCMs as well. Um, in, I was an author on SAP 2.1b, and I also I have to say I tease my agency colleagues because I say, okay, this is a test. What is, which one is 2.3.6? <laughs> because they didn't give them names. <laughs> you know, let's have names next time. Anyway, 2.1b is the one I worked on, which is on scenarios. And one of our key recommendations was, and Virginia was on it as well, Virginia Burkett was on it, and she and I were very adamant and convinced our, all our whole author team that we have a national scenario capacity. So that any agency, any local little road agency, any local water agency can have a place to go to get the climate models that they need, the RCM models that they need for the region. So, you know, I think we've sort of come to the end of bottom up. I mean, I feel we're coming to it, and, and, and I do very much hope as we, you know, what, whatever the next administration will be. And, I, and you know, I have, you know, and, and it's great because all the agency colleagues are making plans and strategies, you know, strategic plans for, for the coming, um, for the, you know, for, for the coming years. And that's what's really needed. We, we actually need to, uh, an, an assessment is absolutely critical, but it will be, I think it should, I think it's gonna be very much, it will be, it'll be not just impacts, but adaptation, impacts and adaptation assessment. Those, that foundation also is very helpful, as you say, because we have to create products that everyone can come to and use. Because, you know, you, there aren't that many of us going around to give, like, you know, like, you know, 20 work, climate change workshops every summer. Thanks. Question is for Mike. Um, you briefly mentioned the offshore drilling facilities and pipelines. And um, with all the pressure for, to, for us to increase domestic drilling, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about 
um, what sort of environmental hazard you foresee with the anticipated increase of intensity of storm <coughs> and frequency? Well, it's really hard to say, and, and I'm not trying to dodge the question. Uh, just studying those impacts was quite the challenge for us. A lot of the da data are proprietary, uh, owned by the drillers and or oil companies. And so they are very reluctant to share that, those data. There's a mishmash of jurisdictional kinds of issues. So collected from a national perspective, there's no one source to go to for data on that. But then com compounding the whole thing is that hurricanes have differential effects. And I don't know why. I, our study was not able to, to get to that level to understand why those differential effects, why one hurricane destroys platforms and, um, and disrupts the, the fuel pipe, pipelines, and another does not. I think that study needs to be done. And I think we need to look at that in, in much more detail. Um, but I'm afraid that's probably going to be somebody else's job. Uh, I just don't know how to, how to go about doing that. From colleagues in NOAA, and probably you all maybe are, are aware that there's an idea that NOAA would create a climate services, um, like the weather service, but a climate service. And that might be very helpful in providing the information that's needed. I think, it, you know, it, as we were talking about it on the way coming over, it would need to evolve. You know, we'd have to grow it and figure out what works. And then if, if it's it, the needs across the different sectors are different and great, and it's not entirely clear that one, one climate service could actually do it all, or you know, I think we need a strategy for how to help the wide variety of sectors, and then, but also how to integrate. But I think that uh, moving towards something like that would, would be um, very helpful, and um, you know, NOAA colleagues I know are working on that um, and, um, you know, and, and developing that as a, as a potential for a program in the coming, coming years. Uh, one last comment before we close down here. Um, you know, we've talked a lot, you've talked a lot about adaptation and so on, and implicit or way in the back of the envelope is this notion that, uh, that somehow emissions get under control to some extent as well because otherwise you're left with runaway adaptations. In other words, is there a limit to adapting if you don't take care of the front end of the problem either? You want to comment, make a comment on that, Mike or Cynthia? Yeah. One of the, the eye-opening things for the transportation world was that as we look out to 2040 or 2050, the IPCC emission scenarios are all largely the same. They yield some level of uh, CO2 emissions, and that we need to get started right away on reducing these impacts if we are to have any impact at all in the latter part of the century. Uh, it's the kind of thing where it could be a whole lot worse if, in fact, our emission scenarios are on the low end. And I guess there's some indication in already that we, even the IPCC scenarios, are not capturing what's happening now or perhaps what could happen in the future. The, the need for mitigation, you know, trying to reduce the level of impact that we have to adapt to becomes a critical consideration as we go forward. I'm, 
I know that the nation has um, changed in its mood, perhaps, or at least I perceive a change in the mood of the country. And certainly we're seeing a lot more bills introduced in, in Congress, and, and the department will be ready to respond to those bills as, as we move forward. In working group two of the IPCC on impacts adaptation and vulnerability, um, one of our, that's the uh, working group I'm a member of, and it, it is very, very clearly stated there that there are limits to adaptation. Um, you cannot completely adapt, we cannot completely adapt our way out of climate change. And so I think one of the key messages from working group two, and, and all of this work really, is that we have to be able to hold and two goals in you know, collectively and move forward on both mitigation and adapting, mitigating and adapting. And in the, that last one, uh, when I put up the plan NYC, plan NYC with sustainability plan, uh, which is the action plan for 2030 in New York that Mayor Bloomberg um, has brought forward. Um, which is being implemented. It has both a stringent 30% uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions for New York City by 2030, and it has adaptation as well. If it, when reporters would ask me, you know, what do you think about the plan? I said, if they had only had mitigation, it would not have been at the, at the cutting edge, but that it has both. And that is what we absolutely need. And another thing in working group two, which is great, is there's a whole chapter on the synergies between you know this whole this huge bifurcation that we've had between mitigation and adaptation, um, and sometimes sometimes there are constraints and there may be some cost constraints and that's something from from on the hill side to think about how do we allocate the the societal resources to adaptation and mitigation. But at the same time, some things are both like green roofs in New York, which one is another thing really exciting very constructive, both adaptation, because people are cooler underneath the green roof, and they don't turn on their air conditioners as much. So let's, you know, I think thinking about these things in very uh, constructive, exciting ways that this can be a pathway to sustainability. And that's, I think, and in a way with the transportation too. I mean, on both sides, transportation, a perfect example of role, great role to play on both adaptation and huge on mitigation as well. Thank you both, Mike and Cynthia. Thank you. For Thank you. Um, we have got to be out of here by 1230 because of some group coming in. But we're going to be back up on July 11th.